Well, good morning, everybody. And happy new year to you again. I hope you had an amazing time with your friends and your family. It was a big year for me. I'm not really a night person. And I made it all the way to midnight central time. That's right, this year. Uh, So it was a big deal without dozing off once. Thank you very much. How many of you uh, made it all the way to midnight this year? Congratulations on still being cool. Each and every one of you, I'm proud of you. Way to go. Well, New Year's is a fun time of year, isn't it? I love this time of year, and I, I think one of the big reasons for it to be uh, why I enjoy it, I should say, is that it's, it's one of the few times where we together collectively have some kind of turning point, right? Where we together take the calendar and sort of flip it from 2014 to 2015. Now, while New Year's is really sort of an arbitrary line in the sand that we use to delineate between one year to another that we all happen to share in common, each of our individual lives are made up of moments that are much less arbitrary and much more important, much more significant. These moments are the moments in our lives where we turn from one major chapter into the next. Now, sometimes these moments are the highs, right? The peaks, the joys of life. Moments like uh, the birth of a child, getting married, graduating from school, um, getting your first job, uh, getting a driver's license or something terrible like your son getting a driver's license, right? But sometimes these moments, these sort of page-turning moments for us are the valleys, the lows, right? Things like losing a job or losing a loved one, maybe a a diagnosis, a mistake, or maybe being harmed by the hand of another person. But whatever they are, Life is never quite the same after they happen. You know, I'd be willing to bet that every one of you in this room, young and old, would be able to put together a short list of these moments in your life, right? Moments that are unique to you, but significant because they're important parts of what make you who you are. Now, why am I talking about this? As you know, we've been going through this uh, series on David. And we've taken a few little time off here the last couple weeks. And so I'm going to give us a little bit more context for this story this morning before we really get rolling. But I'm talking about this today because as we approach the story of David, we are approaching a major turning point in David's life. In fact, it's probably the turning point in David's life and in the life of Israel at this time. Many scholars believe that First and Second Samuel, the two books of the Bible that we've been using primarily to teach on David's life, were originally one book. And this moment that we're going to talk about today is so significant, so big, such a huge change that they actually decided to split the book in two right at this story. Today, we're going to enter into one of the most epic page-turning moments in all of history. Nothing will ever be the same for David. Nothing will ever be the same for Israel after this. Now, let me warn you. These 27 verses, there is a lot going on. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the role of storyteller this morning, okay? And the reason I'm going to do that and approach this passage this way is because the principles that flow out of this passage are the most alive and I think most well understood when they're understood in the inaccurate landscape of this passage, of this story. When we see what's really happening here, we can truly appreciate what God might be saying to us through this passage today. So if you have your Bibles, join me and open to 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the rack in front of you, and it's on page 295. I'm going to pull the old like fifth grade teacher thing. Uh, I am going to wait for you to get your Bibles out and open to 2 Samuel chapter 1. I see it. Good job. Gold star over here. Dan, if you could, that'd be great. Um, But I want everybody to be there because it's really important that you follow along with me this morning, okay? And we're going to start by just looking at these first five words of this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 1. David hears of Saul's death. Verse 1. After the death of Saul. These five simple words, after the death of Saul, are meant to be like a flashing neon sign to us that there is an end of an era. The king is dead. Saul is no more. And we cannot understand David, nor can we understand his response to this news without first understanding who Saul is. Now, Saul was a man who was plucked by obscurity by the hand of God and chosen to be the very first king of Israel. Now, it's hard for us to really overestimate the importance of King Saul as a symbol, especially early on in his reign for the people of Israel. Because the truth is, we don't have anything like this in our culture today. He was at the same time a symbol of God's presence, leadership, and protection for his people. In practically speaking, he was the leader of the government, and he was the leader of the military. He protected and advanced Israel with miraculous military victories. He unified the people. He restored a sense of national identity and security and safety and peace. He was esteemed and celebrated by an entire nation, a level of celebrity that's unlike anything we experience today. Perhaps if we were to imagine him as being a combination of some of the people or, or uh, symbols in our culture that we do know, we could get, begin to understand what Saul was like and how important he was. So if you think of Saul sort of like uh, Winston Churchill, the military genius and legend of Winston Churchill, the uh, power and prestige of the president of the United States, the religious significance of the pope, and maybe the familiarity and and love of an uncle. If you were to put all those things together and wrap them into one bundle, maybe then we could begin to understand how important Saul was to the people of Israel, especially in the beginning. Now, the reason I keep saying in the beginning is because unfortunately, it didn't take long for Saul's leadership and his life to begin to unravel. It didn't take long for his heart to wander. It didn't take long for this man, this king, who was meant to be a symbol of God's sovereign leadership of his people, to start believing that he was the sovereign one, as he played fast and loose 
with God's will and God's way. And everything started to intensify as King Saul began to see more and more of God's blessing on David. Saul became obsessed with power. And as a result, he was overwhelmed with jealousy and anger for David, even though David was passionately and fiercely loyal to King Saul. He hated David, so much so that he spent the better part of eight years hunting him down to try to kill him. The book of 1 Samuel records much of this tragic downward spiral of Saul, and it got so bad that 1 Samuel 16 tells us that God actually took his spirit away from Saul. And then, in a moment that is truly stranger than fiction, we find Saul, this great man, God's man, the anointed king of Israel, visiting a witch for advice. Saul's slow drift away from the Lord had become a steamrolling, uncontrollable freefall. And it ends with a tragic crash. It ends with King Saul committing suicide on the battlefield. A story that's detailed in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, right before the one we read, we're reading today, and again in 1 Chronicles. Details that will be twisted in the story we're about to read today, and I'll explain why later. But it is with these first five words after the death of Saul that the tension of this moment begins to build. David is about to be confronted, confronted with the reality of the king's death, Saul's death, his enemy's death, and the death of his friend, Jonathan. So continue reading with me in verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. Ziklag was about a two-day's journey south of where Saul and his men were fighting in Mount Gaboa to the north. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Now, when somebody was walking around with torn clothes and dust on their head, it was a public symbol to the people around you that you were mourning. Now, a man dressed looking like that, running into David's uh, room during war, is something like uh, a symbol or a picture that we can all probably picture. Something that has unfortunately happened to too many families. Right? Two highly decorated military men knocking on a front door with a chaplain holding a folded American flag. They don't need to say anything. You know when you see them, the worst has happened. That's exactly the situation that David finds himself here. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked, tell me. You can almost hear the urgency in his voice as he repeats himself. The men fled from battle, he replied, and many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And with a sense of disbelief, David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And he said, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, and I said, what can I do? Now, time out. 
we should be very suspicious of the legitimacy of this man's story at this point, right? I mean, think about it. I was out for a walk, and I happened to be on top of this mountain, and there was a raging battle, and I looked to my right, and, and the king was lying there dying. Does that sound really credible to you? Of course not. He's twisting the facts here, and we'll see why in just a second. He asked me, who are you? In Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by my side and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. So the tension has reached his peak. How will David respond? How will David respond to this news? We know that the Amalekite is lying. We know that he's twisting the details of this story. We know that Saul committed suicide. The Amalekite was most likely a scavenger who after the battle went to strip the bodies of the dead. And when he saw Saul, he saw, hey, here's a real opportunity for me. I can take this man's crown and his armband, two things I can easily hide, and I can bring them to the man who has the most to gain from Saul's death, David. And surely I will be handsomely rewarded for being the bearer of such good news. However, all David knows is that Saul and Jonathan are dead. So how will David respond? Remember, Saul hated David, and he spent eight years hunting him down and trying to kill him. Remember, we know that David often felt abandoned and completely hopeless as he ran from Saul. It's recorded as he read from Saul. It's recorded in 1 Samuel, and we have at least 10 Psalms that we know David wrote during this period of his life when he was on the run for his life that are desperate. Cries for help. Expressions of feeling abandoned alone, hurt, and scared for his life. David was a man who, mind you, had done no wrong, a man whose sole desire was to serve God and the people of Israel, a man who had been given a promise that he would one day become the king of Israel, a man who was promised a palace and an eternal blessing who spent nearly the first decade of his life sleeping in the dirt seeking a shameful refuge with his sworn enemies, the Pharisees, left with no other option but to wander the streets, pretending to be insane so nobody would bother him. And every moment for those eight years, David had to look over his shoulder in fear that the man he used to love, the man he used to serve, would hunt him down and kill him like an animal. Why? Why? All because of Saul, this man. This man who seems to be standing between David and God's promised future. How will David respond to hearing the news of his death? Join me in verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David tore his clothes. David wept. 
The man who had a solid motive for murder was instead moved to mourning. So how can we explain this response? How could David possibly respond this way to the death of a man who hated him and hunted him? Well, we do know this. We know that on a couple of occasions, David had the chance to kill Saul himself. But each time he refused to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. There's even one time where David feels guilty about even cutting the corner of the royal robe off. Saul hated David and nobody could quite understand it. But for some reason, David loved Saul. Or to put it more accurately, David loved God. And David chose to focus not on what Saul had done to him, but instead he chose to focus on what God had done for Saul. What this is, this is David trusting in the Lord's timing and in the Lord's purposes. This is David trusting in God's sovereignty. If he was going to become king, it would have to happen at the hand of God, not at his own hand. David would never allow for Saul to be harmed, not even slandered. In fact, David was very careful when he talked about Saul. He always used this phrase, the Lord's anointed. He didn't use his name. There's a lot of debate as to why he did this, but you want to know what I think? If I've reflected and thought more about this story, I think the reason that David doesn't use Saul's name and refers to him only as the Lord's anointed is because it was a reminder to him. A reminder to him that he was being loyal to God, not to this man. That he was to remember not what this man was doing to him unjustly or to his men, but what God has promised to this man. A reminder to him that it is God who puts Saul in this position and it must be God that takes Saul out of this position. It's a trust in the sovereignty of God. A trust that David was able to rest in. A trust that he was able to have peace in. The trust of knowing that God is, in fact, in control, even though things look like they were spiraling completely out of control. And David knew that this selfless commitment to Saul was actually a selfless commitment to God. And in David's response in this moment, we see that This path of trusting in God was a path that David would rather unjustly die on than step off of. We see that Saul's attempts to destroy David had been transformed into a fire of refinement for his character because of David's trust in the Lord. So back to our story. While David and his men mourned, the Amalekite was no doubt eagerly eagerly awaiting his reward in the other room. Now, obviously, he had no idea that David was not like other men. And as a result, he was not going to be rewarded for this lie. The lie he thought would have him coming out smelling like roses, instead stained him with the stench of death. And David would deal with him the same way he would have dealt with himself or any of his own men if they would have laid a hand on the Lord's anointed. Verse 13, David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, 
Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Then we turn to David's lament. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. And it is written in the book of Jashar. What we're about to read, this poem, is perhaps one of the most beautiful, powerful expressions of grief that we have in all of Scripture. Now, often Hebrew poetry doesn't translate well into English. Poetry, just in the first place, is hard for a lot of us to kind of understand and get our mind around. But I think this one does a really good job of standing on its own. And when we read this poem together, I do want to give you one little bit of context. There's a phrase that's repeated three times. And the phrase is, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. And this phrase is the core of this lament that ties the rest of it together. So follow along with me as we read David's lament. A gazelle lies slain in your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terrace fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, and the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet finery, who adored your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. There was one other note I should mention is that when David says his love for Jonathan was greater than that for love of a woman, it's not talking about romantic love. It's talking about a covenantal, more political covenant that they have between one another, that their friendship was more than just enjoying one another as friends, but it was a a bond, a sacred bond that could not be broken. But as you read this poem, I hope you're struck with what an amazing example this is of David trusting in God's sovereignty that he would be able to say these words, that he would be able to love an enemy so deeply, and that he would be able to give us such an incredible example of what it looks like to face our grief and our sorrow with courage and with faith. Now, as I've spent some time reflecting on this scene from the life of David, 
there have really been two lessons that have been lingering with me and challenging me that I want to share with you this morning. Two lessons that are important for us to understand is existing side by side, but also being in harmony with each other. But the first is this. Trusting in God's sovereignty gives us the freedom to rest and to love others well. Trusting in God's sovereignty gives us the freedom to rest and to love others well. You see, David, as he was on the run from Saul, he learned how to trust God in every moment and in every detail. He learned what it meant to put all and only of his hope in who God was and his promise to him. And it is his trust, his dependency on God's sovereignty in those hard times that made it possible for David to respond with love for Saul instead of bitterness or instead of selfish ambition. I mean, look at the context of the story. Isn't it amazing that David doesn't say something like, I told you so? Or he doesn't say, you got what you deserved? Or he doesn't say, finally, it's my turn. Or he doesn't say a, a more spiritual version like, God, thank you for this opportunity. He doesn't mention himself at all. He's not focused on David. He's truly lamenting. Instead, we see in this poem a faith and a trust that is so strong and so secure that David is free. He's free to let go of trying to control his own life. He's free to rest in the fact that his loving creator is in control. He's free to trust and obey. In the good times, in the bad times, and in this time. It is David's deep trust in God and deep trust that God is in control and his desire to follow God's will that gives David the freedom of selflessness. And the ability to love others well, even an enemy. And this is something that's impossible for us to do when we're focused on ourselves. It's impossible for us to do when we're grasping for a sense of control over our life or our emotions. It's impossible for us to do when we're feverishly attempting to micromanage the details of our daily lives. It's impossible for us to do when we're seeking a sense of significance or uh, uh, importance or identity in our performance or in our accomplishments. Church, the good news is that what was true for David, what gave him this peace and rest, is also true for us today, right now. God is still in control and God is still good even when it seems like things are spinning out of control. And we can have rest in that. Amen? But how about you? Do you find freedom and rest in the fact that God is in control, even when things feel out of control? Do you feel free from the self-focus that prevents us from loving others well? Trust and obey. Do you find rest and peace in these simple yet profound words? So first, trusting God's sovereignty gives us freedom to rest and to love others well, even an enemy. And second, trusting in God's sovereignty gives us freedom to grieve deeply and openly. 
This is something that's so obvious in the text, so fundamental, I think it's easy to overlook or neglect or ignore. But David wept. David mourned. He wrote down the depth of his grief and he taught it to the masses. And by doing so, he gave a voice to his grief and he helped hundreds of thousands of other people do the same thing. David was not doing this because he's some kind of like a a buzzkill. David isn't doing this because he's depressed. David isn't doing this because he's a glass half empty kind of guy. He's none of those things. He's an optimist if there ever was one. He's filled with joy. He's filled with passion. David is doing this because he knows that expressing grief is critically important. You see, sometimes I think that we believe if we trusted in God's sovereignty more, we would grieve less. As if somehow we could show God or others that we have true faith by showing an unflinching, joyful acceptance of his will. As if God would take more joy in a forced smile and clenched teeth than he would in honest prayer. Or to put it another way, we seem to have this unspoken expectation that the more mature people among us are less affected by grief. This is not true. This is not true. The truth is that all suffering people need to be able to express their grief. They all need to be able to cry and to pour out their hearts. Now, it's going to look different for everybody, but we all need to do it. What they don't need is to be shut down or or to be told what they should be doing. Suffering does make us weak. And if you ignore it, you'll end up becoming numb or not caring. Or it'll just come out sideways somewhere else in your life. Notice that God doesn't say to David, suck it up. Have more faith. Notice that David doesn't tell his people to pull themselves together. Notice he doesn't say, just have a stiff upper lip. He helps them grieve. He helps them to grieve deeply. He helps them to grieve openly. Our God is sovereign and our God is patient. He is loving. He is kind and he is gentle. Did you know that 70% of the Psalms are at least in part are in whole passionate expressions of sorrow or grief? 70%. They're called Psalms of lament. And I think we would do well to learn how to pray laments. I love the way uh, Derek Kidner, a theologian, puts it, and I'll paraphrase here. He's talking about one of these Psalms. He says, the very presence of such prayers and Psalms in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how people speak when they're desperate. If we believe that he is the one who has assembled the scriptures for us, then we must see that God has not censored out prayers like this. God doesn't say, oh, real believers don't talk that way. Now that doesn't mean that all the attitudes contained in these prayers and psalms are blameless. But it does mean that they're not illegitimate. God understands. Or to put it another way, it shows us that God remains our God, not because we put on a happy face and control our emotions, but because of grace. God is patient and he is gracious. 
And he is with us. He is present with us in all of our mixed motives, all of our mixed emotions. Salvation is by grace. Now, if you're still not convinced, look at Jesus. The guy was crying all the time. And if you wonder, why was Jesus crying all the time? I think Tim Keller says it best. Let's put the quote up on the screen here. Jesus is always crying because he is perfect. Because when you're not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world around you. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the Lord happens inside of the sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. The weeping drives you into the joy. It enhances the joy. And then the joy enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. The sorrow and the grief drive you into God and show you the resources you never thought you had. Yes, you feel the grief, but you are finally emotionally healthy. Trusting in God's sovereignty gives us the freedom to rest and to love others well. Trusting in God's sovereignty gives us the freedom to grieve deeply and openly. If you're here today and you are grieving, or if there's a grief of your past that you have not yet faced, it's okay. You can bring exactly how you're feeling to God, and He understands. And He will be patient with you. He will love you. He will protect you. Isaiah 42 says that the coming Messiah will not break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. Our God is gentle with those who are bruised. He is gentle with those who are smoldering. He will be patient. He will be kind. And may we be as patient and kind with ourselves and with others as we trust and lean in the sovereignty of God. Remember, God is in control of your situation and he understands your grief. He loves you and this morning he is inviting you into his open arms that you might know his comfort and his blessing. That is why he came and suffered the ultimate pain of his death on the cross. That is why we're going to take communion here in a second so that we can be reminded that God will never leave us, that God will never forsake us, because he was truly abandoned, we only seem to be or feel abandoned by him, but we are not. This table reminds us that Jesus voluntarily went into suffering for us. He did not, uh, he did not abandon us, despite all the suffering that he went through for us. Why would we think that he would abandon us in our suffering? He won't. Because of Jesus, there is always hope, even in the toughest page-turning moments of your life. So as we turn to communion, the band's going to come back out. And um, 